Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Will there be no landing? Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, September 18, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research. Jim, always great to be with you on these shows and elsewhere. Yes, thanks for having me. And to everybody paying, uh, watching us, wake up, because it's been that kind of day in the market. Yeah, it's been a little sleepy. Where, where'd we close on the day? Is it is it perfectly flat? It is essentially flat. The S&P's up a whole six basis points or two points overall. <laughs> All right, Jim. So let's talk a little bit about the broader thesis, the broader context here. I use that phrase, no landing at the top of the show. Uh, it's something that you used in your note to us earlier today. Explain what no landing means in the context of this background. Yeah, so I got to give uh, Torsten Slock and Apollo the credit for co coining the phrase. We all talk about a hard landing, um, which is a recession. We talk about a soft landing. And so in keeping with the airplane metaphor, a no landing is the plane doesn't land. It just keeps going. The economy just keeps producing positive quarters. That's what a no landing is. I happen to be in the no landing camp. But as the show unfolds, I'll actually make the case that it, it, that is not as bullish as people think. I know people on FinTwit like want to tear my tonsils out because they're all bearish and they all don't like the no landing idea. But no landing means higher interest rates is what that means. And that may become a serious retardant to any kind of a rally in the market moving forward. So the idea here, Jim, is with no landing scenario, essentially, you just keep putting together uh, positive quarter after positive quarter in terms of growth. You see growth in earnings, you see, uh, you see multiple expansion, uh, and you see ultimately inflation rising. All of that except for the multiple expansion. If you produce positive quarters and people demand things and they push up prices and they push up interest rates, you'll get more earnings. But multiple expansion would only come about, multiple expansion for everybody, that just means the P.E. ratio gets bigger, right? The, the price goes up, it goes up faster than the earnings number go. That's multiple expansion. But that would only work if you have stable to lower interest rates. But if you have inflation becoming problematic, and I'm talking 3 4% problematic, as I like to say, not 8 10 or Zimbabwe problematic. But if you have that kind of 3 4% inflation, that will prevent the multiple expansion. So if earnings are going to expand 6 or 7%, then maybe the stock market expands 6 or 7%, maybe. And if you wind up with 4% inflation, on a real basis, you're not making a whole lot of money in the stock market. That's assuming everything goes right. Then you have to factor in that there's always a surprise somewhere down the line, no one can predict it, and that that could be a, a, a problem too. So when you talk about no landing, when I talk about no landing, too many people hear, oh, quarters and earnings, and here comes 5,000 and 5,500 on the S&P. Yeah, unless you want to tell me that interest rates, that the market's going to be able to continue to ignore higher and higher levels of interest rates. 
And I think that that's going to be the problem is that those interest is interest rate levels will keep going up and provide tougher and tougher competition for the stock market. Well, it's a great point. And just curiously, how long do you think the uh, equity markets in the U.S. are going to be able to avoid uh, the an impact to the performance from the increase in rates? I, I, I jokingly would say through July and it's now September because basically <laughs> the S&P, the S&P today is at the same level it was at in July. Uh, and it kind of stalled out once we started to really see rates move through 4% and we're at 431, 432 on the 10-year note. Now, it's not enough to crater the stock market, but it is enough to really put a lid on it. Let me, let me say the same thing in a different way. Um, University of Chicago and Ibbotson Associates have done some long-term studies in the stock market. Over many, many years, the stock market should be expected to earn you 9%. That's what their studies have shown. Over the last two years, the stock market has returned you zero. Over the last three years, it's actually pretty close to 9% because uh, you were down big last year and up big this year. Uh, that's where your zero comes from. Uh, okay, in 2019, you could have said the same thing. So over many, many years, the stock market gave you a 9% return. Uh, but your alternative, if you didn't like the stock market, was zero in a money market fund or you know 20 basis points, to be more specific. Right. Today... If you don't like the stock market, your return is 5.5% or something approaching 5.5% in a money market fund. That's well over half of the return that you would get from the stock market with no risk at all. No market-based risk at all is what that is. That's very, very different. So the whole concept of TINA, there is an alternative. It is a money market fund, and it will give you over half of what wealth managers will tell you will be the long-term return of the stock market. And if if we get no landing and inflation continues to stay sticky and those rates continue to creep higher, it could be more like two thirds of what you can get in the stock market um, in terms of what, what you can get in a money market fund. And uh, there will be a lot of people will say two thirds of what the stock market will give me with not any risk, sign me up. And I think that there's a lot of that. Look at the inflows in the money market funds. Look at the inflows in the short term bond funds this year. They're booming for exactly that reason. And yet, on the equity side, we're still outpacing the historical rate of return on the S&P year to date. Uh, we're at about 16.5% uh, uh, so far. You pointed out some flatness uh, over the summer, uh, but still longer term, 16.5%. Five-year return on S&P 500 is over 50%. It's still really yes. hot. Yes. Uh, you know, but then there's also the concentration in the market. We cannot forget that. 16% is, you're right, is what the S&P is. About 70%, 60% of that gain is seven stocks. Those are the, the, the magnificent seven. And whenever we put a moniker on it, it usually is not a good sign for the long term. Um, anybody's old enough to remember the nifty 50 from the 70s uh, as well. Uh, and so those, all those stocks are associated with AI. I get it. I understand what's going on there. But you start looking at the stocks, like the other 493 companies in the S&P, they're up about 5% for the year. Uh, you look at the Russell 2000, it's up, uh, as I look at my screen, it's up 4% for the year, the Russell 2000. And then there's another index called the um, Russell Microcap, which is the, set, the bottom half of the Russell 2000 companies. So just so everybody knows, Russell 2000 is company 1001 to 3000 in terms of size. So not the top 1000 companies. The, so the microcap is company number 2,000 to 3,000. 
those companies employ 12 million people. So they're not, you know, insignificant, but collectively that index is down on the year. So the further away from you get from AI, the more the market struggles. Why? 4% interest rates, 5.5% money market rates, 7% mortgage rates. That is taking a toll on the return, the return of these companies. But it's unclear whether or not it's taking a toll on the economy. Don't confuse the stock market's return with the economy. They're not the same thing. And if it's not taking a toll on the economy, and I don't think it is, that's the no landing scenario. And that's why he said no landing isn't a bullish scenario necessarily because it's a story for higher interest rates. By the way, here are some numbers that you already know, Jim, but for folks who don't, year-to-date on NASDAQ Composite up about 32%, almost exactly on a year-to-date basis. NASDAQ 100, the largest companies uh, in that index, up 40% year-to-date. So there's the dispersion the story you're talking about. Yes. The NASDAQ 100 is year-to-date is the best year ever um, right now, and uh, even better than 99, because 99 when it was up 80% for the year, most of that gain came in the fourth quarter. We're not quite at the fourth quarter yet, but it has been extraordinary what you've seen. But again, it's seven companies. The NASDAQ 100 or QQQs, half that index is is seven companies. And those companies are just going ballistic right now because of two letters, AI. We're gonna take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let's switch gears here a little bit, Jim, and talk about what you see in the bond market right now. What's the setup there? How are you viewing this from the bigger picture perspective? So if I'm in the no landing camp, what I'm also trying to say is while interest rates are providing a competition for stocks, they're not providing any kind of a retardant for the economy. The story of the last 18 months has been 100% 100% chance of recession, as Bloomberg said in the summer of 2022. Um, we're going to have a recession in six months, a soft landing, a hard landing. All of that's been wrong. All of that has been wrong. The problem with the economy to date has been there has been no problem with the economy. It continues to produce positive quarters. It continues to produce 200,000 jobs a year, a month, excuse me, and according to the payroll report. So when you look at the bond market and you keep talking about where's the slowdown, there is no slowdown. Um, Well, there's going to be a slowdown. You've been telling me there's going to be a slowdown for 18 months. I guess if you say it until the end of time, eventually there will be a slowdown, but I'm not necessarily seeing it. So when it comes to the bond market, what you're seeing is creepingly higher interest rates. What has been the the high the ten year note bottomed at um, fifty one basis points in August of twenty twenty? What's been the high of the cycle this morning when it hit four thirty seven? Was the high of the cycle? It backed off a little bit by the end of the day, but the highest print we've had was this morning. The two year note came within two basis points 
of setting the high print of the cycle. Those are 16-year highs in those interest rates. Why are those rates going up? No landing, higher crude oil prices, fostering to stickier inflation, suggesting that interest rates at a minimum cannot come down, and that maybe the Fed, while I agree the Fed will not raise rates this week because it's not priced in, they'll probably raise rates one more time before the end of the year. And I'm not so sure that they're done even with that after that next rate hike, that there might be another rate hike after that. I'll remind everybody that, oh, but you know, th there's going to be one more rate hike and they're done. The same people that have been wrong for a year and a half. Um, you know, my favorite metaphor on this was back in February of no, 2022, so 20 months ago, Jamie Dimon came out and said, I think the Fed could raise rates six or seven times in 2022. That's six or seven 25 basis point hikes. Wall Street was like, really? The Fed's going to be that aggressive? They're going to raise rates six times? No way. I can't believe they're going to do that. Well, he was wrong. And Wall Street was wrong. He didn't raise rates six times. He raised rates 21 times in 2022. So they've been completely misjudging this entire cycle. So what I'm arguing is, there's going to be a rate hike in November and maybe more in 2024. Just more of the same misjudgment that we've seen for the last 20 months. By the way, for those who are wondering, uh, you get to that number by by aggregating the 25 basis point hikes. That's why there are so many in a period of time where it couldn't happen. Right. 20, of 21 hikes is 425 basis points of uh, interest rates moving up for the year. Yeah. Listen, while we're talking about interest rates, fixed income uh, and energy, I wanted to take a look at a conversation I had this morning with Harris Kupperman and Louis Gobb. Uh, this is from part eight of our How to Profit from Crash or Boom right here on Real Vision, where we look at these questions thematically and systematically. Let's take a look at the clip. So I think we're moving into a world where energy is the new anti-fragile asset class. It's the new thing that actually diversifies your portfolio. Meanwhile, nobody owns it. Nobody owns it because it's a very small part of benchmarks, because of ESG constraints, because mm -hmm. of you know a terrible decade, basically between 2013 and 2021, or eight years. Lots of reasons to not own it. Um, and But what's going to happen, I think, is the more energy remains an anti-fragile asset class, and again, it was again in August, the more, you know, so much of the world's money now is managed by computers that it's going to start popping up in all sorts of quant models where it's like, oh, energy actually is a good diversifier and you're going to start seeing the flows. And right now, all the guys that are long energy are guys like Cuppy, myself, uh, guys who are almost religious about it. Uh, who, you know, we're not in there for the next 20%. We're in there for the next 300%. Jim, I really enjoyed hosting this conversation with uh, Louis and Cuppy earlier today. It's an interesting point, this idea that energy becomes the anti-fragile asset, hard assets rather than government bonds, rather than U.S. Treasuries. What are your thoughts? Well, I agree with them that, you know, right now the setup in energy is incredibly bullish. The prices have been moving almost in a parabolic st stance. The um, fundamentals of energy have been very good. The fundamentals, I would I'll break them down two ways. We all know that the OPEC plus, which is Russia and the Saudi uh, Saudis, are voluntarily cutting back in supply, and everybody's blaming everything on that on on them cutting back on on output in order to have higher prices, and that has something to do with it, no doubt. But if you gaze your eyes over at the demand side of the equation, demand for crude oil is booming in the United States. Now, 
you know, we're nearly 20, 21 million barrels a day of consumption of crude oil. That is an all-time record. That is a sign of no landing. What gets you to an all-time record in crude oil consumption? Growth, you know, uh, GDP moving forward and stuff. You put together a pullback in uh, production by OPEC plus, record demand, which is more than offsetting whatever weakness you're getting out of China. And then you throw in a 40-year low in the SPR, and you've got a cocktail for explosively higher prices. The price of crude oil is up 36% in 10 weeks. And the positioning, according to the commitment of traders, they're not positioned for this. They are not necessarily, you know, everybody's all in and all along. They're, they're nothing close to that. There is still a high degree of skepticism when it comes to this rally in crude oil. So I could see this rally continuing. From my perspective as a macro investor, what the data is, is screams is that it screams headline inflation. Oh, but it's headline inflation. The Fed will look through that. Yes, they will. And they'll conclude they cannot cut rates. They can never cut rates with higher uh, headline inflation. So you can cancel the 2024 cuts unless the economy falls off a cliff, which I don't think is going to happen. And they more likely might have to respond to higher inflation in 2024 by raising rates even more than just the one more cut at the end of the year. By the way, with the connection, the linkage is the feed through uh, from headline to core. Uh, do you see that happening? Yes, there is always a feed through. The economy runs on energy. Energy is in input processes and transportation costs. It's in everything right now. So eventually what will happen with the big rise in crude oil is it shows up in gasoline, it shows up in energy, it shows up in headline. Eventually input costs are going to go up. So that's going to get passed along too. Eventually transportation delivery costs are going to go up. That's going to get passed along. And all of those are in core. Now those are second order effects. They don't occur right away. But if this 36% rise in crude oil continues or at least holds, it will show up to some degree in core. And remember, core inflation is still over 4%. And it probably will stay that way maybe to the end of the year. And there was a time two years ago when we would have looked at 4% core inflation and found that completely and totally unacceptable. Right. And now I know Wall Street's trying to say, hey, we've fallen to four. Everything's okay. No, we've fallen to a level that's unacceptable. And that's why I think this whole idea that the Fed's going to declare victory and cut rates next year is really premature. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jim, we talked about the energy picture from the cyclical perspective. Let's talk about the structural aspect of it. You talk about rising demand here in the United States, obviously significant rising demand from a structural perspective from the global south, uh, all over developing Asia uh, and elsewhere. Uh, and supply remains meaningfully constrained uh, due to effectively uh, government policy interventions. Does that sound to you uh, like a recipe for longer, for higher in terms of energy prices? Absolutely. Absolutely. You've got that. You're right. 
you know, the whole green movement, the ESG movement, the Saudi 2030 project, which is their that's seven years from now where they want to be off of fossil fuels as a uh, dependency in the Saudi economy by 2030. That's why they're pay overpaying for soccer players right now, because they're trying to diversify their economy away from anything that they can that's not fossil fuel related. All of that is going to feed back into higher prices. Um, demand for energy is there. We're running at around 103 million barrels uh, of energy a day worldwide. As I said, about 21 million of that's from the United States. The other 80 or so is from the rest of the world. Um, that number, even by 2030, is expected to be at least 110 million barrels a day, if not higher. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to, there was a protest today on Wall Street. Over a thousand people on Wall Street were protesting to end fossil fuels. So they want us all to pay $25 a gallon. And then we know what's going to happen at the pump. And we know what's going to happen to the economy if that happens. Look, I get it. You want to end fossil fuels for environmental reasons? Okay, that's fine. But just protesting that we just shut it all off is a recipe for economic disaster. And so that's not the way that we're going to have to do it. You're going to have to find viable alternatives for energy, for fossil fuels. Right. And while we're working on some, whether it's wind, solar, maybe nuclear in a safe way, they're still not quite there. You know, electric uh, EV for cars, they still need to be powered from something. And that power is coming from um, fossil fuels in some degree or another. So, yeah, the, the energy story does seem to be very bullish, especially as they talked about in the clip coming off of 10 years of where energy investors were just pummeled. It was a terrible time to be an energy investor for the 10 years ending about 2021. So that's one of the reasons why there's a high degree of skepticism uh, in energy, because all the energy bulls have been blown out. They're gone. Right. All that's left are the energy skeptics and the energy bears, because they're the only survivors in that market. So we're going to have to create a whole new generation of energy bulls, which will bring about higher prices too. Yeah, that's very well said. Look, it's about 4.20 p.m. Eastern time here. Uh, I'd like to be off fossil fuels by 5 p.m., but the reality is it's just not going to happen. I just don't understand how this tr transition uh, in energy takes anything less than decades. I mean, if you think about the infrastructure requirements, the technology requirements, uh, the time takes uh, to logistically move those into place. I mean, we're, we're not getting there by 2030. I mean, I, I'm not trying You're to be right. cynical about it. I just don't, I just don't see how it happens. Right. You are you are correct that, you know, the issue is not that we don't want to be there. The issue is, you know, how how do we want to be there? And as a matter of fact, this feeds right into, you know, the 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 big labor market potential with the UAW strike in that UAW for the first time in their 88 year history is, is striking all three companies at the same time. At the heart, we all focused on they want a 32 hour work week and a 35 percent pay raise and they want to return to define benefits, but really at the heart of this is the administration and everybody's push to force the auto companies by 2032, that's in nine years, to have 50% of their fleet sales to be EVs, electric vehicles, where it's 3% right now. And the and the UAW sees that and sees and sees the way that EVs are made, and they're like, we're gonna lose all our jobs. And that's ultimately what is behind that strike. It is, a, it is a forcing of EVs onto the big three 
when we're really not ready for it. We're going to get there eventually, but forcing it sooner is just creating more havoc than it would potentially benefit. I don't know if the electrical grid's there. I don't know if the uh, the amount of rare rare earths that we need for all the batteries are there, but we're going to jam it down and we're going to say, you know, California has already outlawed the sale of com internal combustion engines in 2035. That is in 12 years. There will be no more sales of internal combustion engine cars in, in California. Are we ready for 100% EVs in the state of California? The, this simple answer is no, we are not ready for 100% EVs in the state of California, but we're pushing headlong into it. The UAW is very nervous. They're seeing that as a byproduct of this, they're going to lose a lot of jobs. And that's the real motivation behind their strike. I mean, I guess California could always uh, walk it back in the event that they weren't able to get there. They could change the law uh, if it was going to be catastrophic for the economy. I mean, look, I, I think Teslas seem like the greatest third car uh, known to humankind. But would I buy one for my first or second? It's just not practical, right? Am I wrong about this? No, you're absolutely right, because 80% of Teslas that are sold are the ones with all of the bells and whistles and the highest option in the most expensive cars, because you're exactly right. They are bought by somebody who has an $80,000 SUV and has a $70,000 sedan, and in the middle, they put in a three-car garage a Tesla. And that is the perfect car for that demographic. Right. But and they love it. the perfect car... Yeah, and absolutely they love it. And why wouldn't they love it? Because when they have to take a long trip, they all get in the SUV and they've got the second car and the third car. But as the main dr daily driver for people that's going to be parked, I live in I live in an urban area in Chicago. It's going to be parked in the street, not in a garage. Is an EV really it? And do you want to leave an EV with a battery half charged overnight in a Chicago winter when it's five below zero? Yeah, you know, and good luck and see what the charge is left on that battery in the morning. These are great cars, don't get me wrong, yeah. but they're specific for a certain use. I don't think they're ready for wide adoption use, kind of like the internal combustion engine is. Why? Because we spend 100 years perfecting the internal combustion engine for wide adoption use. We're not quite there with the EV. Yeah, I know Raul loves his, but I tease him. He lives on a an island that's, I think, 10 miles wide uh, by a mile high at its widest point. Right. So he could drive the whole island on one charge. And, yeah. and, uh, and you know, but uh, but Ash, if you had to get into your car and you had to drive to, you know, Washington, D.C., you're going to take an EV or you want to want to take an internal combustion engine car because you don't know where you don't know how long it's going to take and you don't know where your charge is going to be when you're three quarters of the way there. Uh, yeah, there's charging stations along the way and stuff, but it's a lot easier to take an uh, internal combustion car uh, and it's a, a lot less stressful. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, I, I love the idea of hybrids. I might buy a gas electric hybrid. Right. Well, you know, you've always got that option as well, too, with a hybrid that you've got the, the gas. But like I said, don't get me wrong. These are great cars and I think they're fantastic and they are the future, except yeah. to say they are the future. So let's force them on everybody now is where the problem comes in. Yeah, very well said. Jim, we've got questions coming in fast and thick. I want to get to some of these. Uh, first one comes to us from Trillion X Macro from YouTube. The question is, Jim, do you think that we'll see the Fed raising the dots this Wednesday, talking about the dot plot there? And if yes, does it mean that we could see 6% plus Fed funds rate in H1 2024, first half of 2024? First of all, I love your handle, Trillion X Macro. That's a fantastic ma handle. 
Yeah, I think you're right. So the Fed is going to put out the dot plot on Wednesday. Uh, we're expecting that uh, we being the collective wisdom of Wall Street is that uh, they'll probably hold the dots for the peak in 23 and in 24. Uh, the, the peak in 23, probably where they are right now, one more rate hike is what they've got priced in. Maybe they might raise it. But the real question is, they had four rate cuts priced in for 24. Will they take some of those rate cuts out of the market? And the feeling is, yes, that maybe one or two of those rate cuts will come out. I actually think it might be more like two or three, or it should be more like two or three will, will come out of the market. So the when you look at the dots, the 23 dot, not so much how high is the peak going to be. And remember, they've been grossly underestimating the peak anyway. If you go back and you look at where the dots were a year ago, they never thought we'd get anywhere near 5%, and we're here right now. But I think the real story is going to be, look at the 24 dots. How many of those rate cuts next year are they going to remove? And I wouldn't be surprised if they're a little bit more aggressive and removing more of them than less of them. Here's another great question. This one comes just from Bo Nito, another one of our regular viewers uh, on YouTube. And the question is, Jim, what's your take on the continuing difficulties of Chinese companies like Country Garden? Could the bond market dump last night have something to do with the deep-seated issues in the Chinese economy? Um, to the last part of your question, no, I don't think that the – if you're talking about the U.S. bond market dump last night, which held through most of today – no, if anything, if Chinese economy is having problems, it should be a bid for the U.S. Treasury market. It shouldn't be a dump for the U.S. Treasury market. That would be to the second half of your question. The first half of your question, look, let me mince no words about this. The Chinese economy is in a bad place. Um, a year ago, they had zero COVID. When they lifted zero COVID at the end of December, they, they let me remind everybody, they were literally welding apartment doors shut and not allowing people to leave their apartment for months on end. Now, yeah, you live in a one-bedroom apartment and you can't leave it for months on end and they'll deliver you bags of food to stay in your apartment. When they opened the doors and let people out, that was supposed to spur electric, uh, economic activity, get everybody back to work. And the only thing Wall Street said was, is it going to be a big boom, a huge boom, or a gargantuan boom in China? That was the only argument we had. Instead, right. here we are in September. There's been no boom at all in, in China. It has been, they are starting to look like this year's growth rate might be the same growth rates a little bit more now than last year when everybody was welded in their apartments. There's something seriously wrong with the Chinese economy. Now, I think it's twofold. I think it's a giant misallocation of resources malinvestment, which is what you pointed out with Country Garden. We've all seen the stories about them building ghost cities and, um, you know, in ghost apartment buildings and stuff. That's all coming home to roost because they borrowed a ton of money to build all this stuff. Nobody bought these. And now the banks are sitting on a lot of bad credit. A lot of the developers, the Country Gardens of the world, are sitting on a bunch of bad credit. and They can't move these buildings that nobody wants. And they're either defaulting or threatening to default. That's one big problem with their economy. The other big problem with their economy is under Chairman Xi, they've more centralized their economy. Um, more and more, every decision in the Chinese economy needs to be made in Beijing, less and less locally or independently from Beijing. And that's stifling growth. And third, in the last month or so, 
the Chinese recognizing the problems have been doing what the Chinese do best. They've been trying to manipulate their markets higher. They have been changing the rules. They have been printing money. They have threatened to jail short sellers. By the way, they have jailed short sellers in the past in China. And yet yesterday, their stock market opened at a new low for the year. So none of this, what is this telling me? The problem with the Chinese stock market the pro is not that speculators are selling it and short sellers, short sellers are selling it. It's that people are liquidating because they right. don't like what they see. And that is that should be very concerning right now. So the, yeah, the Chinese economy does have a problem. Last offering on China, it is somewhat decoupled from the rest of the world. So when the Chinese economy booms, that doesn't mean we boom. When the Chinese economy is in trouble, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're in trouble either. They're somewhat independent of everybody else. But that said, they are in, in not in a good place. Yeah, the age-old game of bl blaming the short sellers. Uh, Jim, I know we're about out of time here, but I have to ask you this question about the dollar. DXY up over 105 uh, right now. Dollar has been red hot. What's your take and what's its potential impact? Yeah, so I know that the the fancy talk right now is de-dollarization. The BRIC countries are getting together. They don't want to do trading in the dollar. Um, at the same time that the dollar has been rallying quite strongly. It is up nine weeks in a row against the euro, which is record. The euro started in 2000, and this is the first time we've had nine weeks in a row where the dollar has gone up. The BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, collectively their currencies are imploding right now. So the BRICs get together and they say, we're going to do business in currencies that are collapsing. Well, why would you want to do that? You're just costing yourself more money. So let me bottom line this for you. And the dollar has been stronger because I think of a lot of the uncertainty in the global situation that when things go uncertain, the rest of the world says, first thing I do is buy dollars. Second thing I do is figure out what's going on. Now, keep in mind that if you want to tell me all of the problems that the dollar has, I'll stop you and say, you're missing some. It's far worse than you think. But you need to tell me what is the viable alternative. And don't go maxi on me and, and give me some fantasy that it's Bitcoin. Maybe in 10 years, it might be Bitcoin. But that is not ready for prime time to be. Go buy a latte at, at uh, Starbucks with a Bitcoin. Good luck with that. And then go buy a car and take out a mortgage. As soon as you can do that, then we can start talking about Bitcoin. Now, you might find one barista that's going to give it to you and somebody over there in Seattle that might do this. But I want you to be able to tell me every coffee shop in the world will take this. Then it can maybe become a reserve currency. So it's not going to be Bitcoin. So the problem or the benefit the dollar has, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, is it's the worst reserve currency ever created, except for all the others is really what it's got going. So the, yes, the dollar has been rallying because the world is uncertain. The world would prefer to be in the reserve currency than not be in the reserve currency. And then throw into the idea, we've got very high interest rates and you're getting paid in, you're getting paid in interest rate to be in dollars as well too. So I think all this talk about de-dollarization, and by the way, Ash, I started, I hate to admit this, but I started on Wall Street in 1985. So I'm coming up on my 40th anniversary on Wall Street. And literally the first week I started on Wall Street, 
One of the old poobas at the company I was working at was telling me about the dollar being the end of the reserve currency. So here I am 38 years later, and we're still talking about the same story. And, you know, like I said before, I guess if we keep talking about it long enough, we could eventually one day say, see, I told you that that was going to happen. I was just early for 38 years. So all I'm trying to say about the dollar is it is rallying because all of the other alternatives it's not the euro, it's not the one, it's not the BRICS, it's not a crypto, it's certainly not Bitcoin. All of the other alternatives is not ready to replace the dollar. So it is going to remain the, the reserve currency by default. Jim, what a perfect way to end this conversation. Always enjoy these so much, man. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us, Jim. I should say, as we wrap this show, last Monday, we launched a special series that will run through the end of the week. And Real Vision will be doing what we do best, bringing you the experts to help us think through all about what's happening and how we can position ourselves for possible outcomes. Guests joining us include Luke Groman, Michael Howell, Lizanne Saunders, Harris Kupperman, Beth Kindig, Juliette DeClerc, David Rosenberg, and many, many more. Because this series is so important, we're opening Real Vision back up again ahead of the new platform launch to celebrate the launch and to celebrate our ninth anniversary. You can get one full month of Real Vision Essential for just $20.14 in honor of our founding year. Go to realvision.com forward slash crash or boom. That's realvision.com forward slash crash or boom to sign up. When you join us on this journey, you'll also be skipping the queue to get access to our new Real Vision platform. Thank you all so much for watching or listening to Real Vision Daily Briefing today. We'll be back tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Have a great afternoon, everybody.